Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm Mark Pipus. For those of you who don't know me, I have the privilege of directing the Hematology Oncology Fellowship here at Dartmouth. And, um, it's my distinct pleasure today to introduce our uh, speaker, who is actually the third fellow speaker of the springtime. Sadir Manda uh, is one of our senior fellows. Uh, and he's going to be speaking um, to us today on evolving therapeutic landscape in CLL. Dr. Manda came to us from uh, India, from Gandhi Medical College, where he did his undergraduate and his medical degree. He did his residency at Case Western Reserve and then actually spent several years as a hospitalist between 2008 and 2012 at Case Western before coming to us for fellowship. He's now finishing his, his third year up. And he's going to be, unfortunately, leaving us shortly to go to warm and sunny and beautiful Tucson, Arizona, one of my favorite places in the world, uh, to join Arizona Oncology as their junior hematologist. Um, Dr. Monda, I'm required to say, unfortunately, does not have any financial interests, although he wishes desperately that he did. Uh, and he does not. Are you discussing off-label? No. And he's not discussing any off-label treatments. Uh, and he's not receiving any direct payments from me or anyone else from doing this talk. So uh, please give your attention to Dr. Monda uh, for the next hour or so. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pipers. Uh, before I forget, I uh, would like to wish Dr. Pipers a very happy birthday. And, <laughs> and fellows, before you leave this hall, make sure you wish him too. So. All right. Uh, so I'll be talking about... Uh, the evolving therapeutic landscape in CLL. And here are my financial disclosures. It's a clean slate. And uh, I'll be breaking up my talk into uh, epidemiology and then followed by diagnosis, highlights in pathogenesis, uh, prognostic factors, and then uh, finally the evolving therapeutic landscape. So uh, before I delve into this topic of CLL, uh, we should uh, kind of see when this was recognized as a clinical entity. It looks like the first case probably was uh, described in way back in 1827 by a French physician uh, who described uh, a lemonade salesman to be having fevers with abdominal swelling and weakness. And on autopsy, uh, he was found to have a massive splenomegaly. And the, the blood is described as thick like grill. So again, possibly CLL could be other heme malignancies too, but uh, that's the first recorded case. And then in 1845, uh, John Bennett described uh, superation of blood without an actual infectious source. So again, this could be leukemia, or probably CLL. Uh, and then Wurtshow is the one who came up with more distinct classification, uh, describing it as more of splenic and lymphatic leukemia. And I'm guessing this patient had splenomegaly and uh, lymphadenopathy. And he also described it as a lymphosarcoma, where uh, one of his autopsy patients had uh, massive lymph nodes and uh, splenomegaly. So that's the history, or the first time this disease was probably described. Coming to the epidemiology by itself, uh, CLL is the most common uh, adult hematologic malignancy in the, in the West. And uh, it's estimated to be around 16,000 uh, new patients will be diagnosed per year, uh, with around 4,500 of uh, of them, or not the mortality of 4,500 patients per year. And this is old data, means we, probably in 2009, uh, the mortality was 4,600, so we expect it to be better. We don't have the latest results yet. The five-year survival has been improving over the years. Uh, the graph that is depicted is uh, from Sweden, uh, where we can see that the five-year uh, survivals have been improving uh, going back to 1970s, uh, and so are the 10-year uh, mortalities. And 
even though CLL is a hematologic malignancy, the most common cause of death in these patients is from infections. And uh, I would like to, uh, you to make a note of that. And coming to the incidence, it's predominantly a disease of the elderly. And again, it's a politically uh, contentious issue where we draw the line for young and older patients, but at least uh, looking at the data from uh, our SEER database, our UK, uh, looks like the incidence takes off uh, after 70 years. Uh, and again, there's a male predominance. Uh, so more than 70% of the patients are about 65 years, and uh, uh, rarely do we see patients uh, younger than 40 years with this disease. And then coming to diagnosis, uh, the diagnostic part of CLL. So the first thing, uh, the uh, test we need to make sure that someone has CLL is they should have an absolute lymphocyte count of more than 5,000. And then once we see that, uh, the first thing we should be getting is a peripheral smear, uh, which has a pretty distinct characteristics of <laughs> small lymphocytes, uh, scanty cytoplasm with a clump chromatin. And then all the smudge cells uh, that we see are more of an artifact uh, uh, that occur during the slide preparation, where these lymphocytes are actually quite sensitive to these smears and they actually uh, get destroyed. And uh, what we are seeing, all those smudge cells are actually destroyed lymphocytes while making a peripheral smear. And then to confirm our diagnosis, uh, the only test we need is an immunophenotype. Uh, this is only to confirm. The staging and everything needs more tests, but just for the confirmation, uh, immunophenotype is usually CD, or it has to be CD5 positive. Uh, but the CD20, which is a B cell marker, is dimly positive in these patients. And if you can, all oh, the markers in there. So on the top, uh, uh, flow diagram where you see that the CD19 and the CD5 are positive. And then coming to the middle one, the CD20 is dimly positive. The CD23 is strongly positive. And then the kappa restriction is, uh, is weak, and that's uh, the usual phenotype that we see in uh, CLL. Uh, it has to be made sure that we are not dealing with uh, some other conditions, um, especially mantle cell in the leukemic phase. Uh, but again, uh, the immunophenotype majority of the times gives us a clear diagnosis. The uh, one again, we don't need a bone marrow for diagnosis, but uh, the morphology can be quite distinct, uh, and it, it can vary from a nodular infiltrates. Uh, usually, we see the nodular infiltrates, uh, which are away from the paratrabeculate. Again, uh, that's one of the classic features. Uh, it can also present with diffuse infiltrates that tells us it's more of an advanced disease. <clears throat> and moving on to the pathogenesis itself. Over the years, uh, the micro, micro environment of CLL has evolved um, as we understand about this disease more and more. So to your left is uh, the cartoon of a bone marrow which shows us uh, that these uh, CLL cells are attracted by the uh, chemokines that are released by the mesenchymal stem cells. And what they do is uh, they create a vascular niche. And uh, this niche is, provides the required uh, growth and uh, survival that these CLL cells need. And uh, on, on your right is a lymph node uh, uh, cartoon, which again shows that uh, the mesenchymal stem cells uh, uh, play the ringleader role here, where they secrete all these cytokines, and there's a lot of uh, crosstalk among all these cells, uh, which, help in, which help the malignant clone to grow and uh, survive and proliferate. Coming to the malignant B cell itself, uh, the nurse-like uh, lymphoma cells and the mesenchymal stem cells Apart from them, the T cells and the B cell receptor antigen is also uh, stimulated. And this, uh, again, helps the cancer cells grow and uh, proliferate. Um, 
It's the B cell receptor uh, plays a major role, or at least that's our understanding now, is uh, that could be the driving factor for the CLL, at least at some level. Uh, but it, uh, the T cells are also thought to play a role in uh, impaired immunity in these conditions. So from our understanding as of now, the B cell receptors uh, is, can be stimulated, or there's no mutation that stimulates the B cell receptor, but it's more of uh, the microenvironment that causes uh, ongoing B cell receptor signaling. And uh, with B cell activation, a series of enzymes are activated and that help uh, in uh, tumor growth and survival. Uh, the two important uh, uh, tyrosine kinases uh, that have helped in uh, managing this condition is the BTK, the Bruton tyrosine kinase, and then the PI3K delta inhibitor, the idilalisib, which I'll be talking a little bit more in later. So coming to the prognostic factors, uh, this is uh, quite a heterogeneous disease, and uh, the heterogeneity was... Uh, noticed uh, way back in 1975 when uh, Kanti Rai in New York looked at all his CLL patients uh, and he kind of sat down and uh, came up with this graph where he saw that patients with just lymphocytosis had a prolonged disease-free or prolonged survival, that whereas patients with cytopenias like anemia and thrombocytopenia had a much worse survival. And based on this clinical classification, he came up with a staging system called the Rye staging system, which where we base the disease from, uh, or stage the disease from zero to four um, based on these features. At the same time, across the Atlantic, uh, Binet came up with his own classification where he, uh, uh, described uh, the staging as A, B, and C, and the A was more of uh, no cytopenias, but uh, with less than three lymph node involvements. Uh, more than three areas of lymph node, lymph node involvement was B, and then uh, cytopenias automatically made it C. And the beauty of the, both these classifications is we still use them to classify CLL patients to date, and all the clinical trials uh, when they enroll, uh, ask us to classify where these where our patients fall into. So I think the clinical classification is the most important classification in CLL to date. And then in 1980s and 90s, uh, there was better understanding about the genomic uh, aberrations. Uh, the karyotypes uh, were there were descriptions of 17 p deletion, 13 q deletions, and 12 trisomy. But there was, there was not a good understanding of which uh, genomic aberration played a major role uh, until uh, FISH was developed. And uh, in 2000, this seminal paper came out uh, describing uh, the genomic aberrations, especially the 17P deletion patients, had a much worse survival uh, with a median survival of 30 months uh, from the time of diagnosis. Uh, compared to a 13Q deletion patient who had a survival better than the normal karyotype. Um, and uh, he described uh, the various clinical findings in these patients, too. Uh, interestingly, the 11Q, patient, 11Q deletion patients presented with uh, extensive adenopathy. Uh, we still don't know what's the real cause of adenopathy, but that's the clinical feature that these patients present with. And then our understanding of the disease evolved when um, there was more data on the unmutated <coughs> versus the mutated uh, heavy chain uh, region in the uh, CLL cells. And uh, as you can see on the right, the unmutated uh, uh, heavy chain uh, genes have a much worse prognosis compared to the mutated uh, heavy chain. And that's probably from the cell of origin uh, the unmutated cells are probably naive cells uh, that become a malignant clone before uh, they go through the germinal center, so probably a more early phase of, uh, in the uh, B cell development. And then in the last probably five, six years, there has been an explosion in uh, the molecular genetics 
Uh, what to date, what we know is there's no pathognomic mutation, but there are 10 to 20 mutations that have been shown to drive this disease. And uh, uh, various mutations affect various pathways. Uh, the, the most severe or, uh, or the aggressive disease is the one that affects the TP53 uh, gene, which again uh, is seen with the 17P deletion, uh, or the ATM gene that is uh, seen with the 11Q deletion. Uh, and then uh, the B cell receptor signaling that I kind of alluded to before. The other two mutations that have uh, been described uh, are, or are being described more and more are the notch one mutations, which again is a, a mutation that upregulates up the NFK beta pathway. And uh, there are reports showing us that uh, the, these patients with notch one mutation have a higher risk for uh, transformation and uh, nearly 30% of these patients can undergo a Richter's uh, transformation. And then um, a mutation in the RNA editing gene, the SF3B1, is also kind of showing up. And these mutations are not exclusive. They can, uh, they can be a combination of mutations. Uh, so it's, it's an evolving field. Uh, we still don't know exactly uh, which mutation drives or which, would, which mutation is a dr uh, driver mutation in a combination of mutations. Uh, there are also reports of clonal selection that could be uh, causing disease progression. Um, means, uh, there are studies that have shown that at the time of diagnosis, uh, especially in 17p deletion patients, that uh, only 5% of the cells have a 17p deletion clone. But at the by the time they need treatment, it could be as high as 50%. So there is this possibility that we are looking at a clonal selection that could be causing a disease progression. And what does this actually mean uh, when we are talking about mutations and what, how does it impact our patients? So this graph uh, kind of nicely describes, uh, compared to the general population, how, this, how these patients do. Uh, in the blue is the patients with the deletion 13Q deletion, and they are they have a reasonably indolent course, and uh, their life expectancy is close to the general population. But if you move down to the bottom, uh, the red color one, that's the TP53 mutation. Uh, again, uh, it, they don't describe it as a 17P deletion. Uh, they're looking at more of a mutation point of view. And these patients have a much aggressive course, and, uh, and everyone else falls um, in between. And based on this, uh, there is a proposed classific uh, classification that could be coming into play. Uh, and uh, this is based on the 10-year survival rate. So the extremely high-risk group uh, who had a 10-year survival of around 35% had uh, TP53 and uh, the uh, BRC3 mutations. And then the intermediate risk were classified as notch one uh, and SF3B mutations and 11Q22 deletion. And then the low risk group was uh, trisomy or normal, uh, trisomy 12 or normal genetics. And then the very low risk was uh, deletion 13Q. Um, there are, means, there are some critiques to this uh, classification. One thing is they haven't described the B cell receptor uh, or patients who are dependent on the B cell receptor uh, as the driving factor. And uh, they also don't mention about the ATM gene, which again uh, is uh, known to uh, drive these mutations. Even though there's 11Q deletion, uh, they don't take ATM mutation into the consideration here. So that's, that's still evolving. So as of today, uh, our prognostic factor, factors, we still take the clinical stage into treatment decisions. Uh, patients with advanced disease need treatment. Patients with early disease, rise stage zero or one, don't need disease. And then f the FISH does uh, help us uh, at least decide on the treatment decisions. Everything else helps us in prognosticating this disease, but we don't make treatment decisions on any of those prognostic factors. Uh, the CD38 and ZAP70 are thought to be surrogate markers for uh, the immunoglobulin heavy chain gene, so we kind of use them as uh, indirect evidence of aggressive disease. And coming to the more 
common but uh, specific, CLF-specific uh, conditions. Uh, the first thing uh, that has to be remembered is the, the CLL causes immune dysregulation, so that increases the risk of infections. And uh, as I said earlier, nearly 60% of CLL patients die from infections, and that's because of uh, a number of uh, problems. Uh, the hypogammaglobinemia is a more of a B-cell-mediated problem, but we're also looking at T-cell-impaired uh, 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 inhibition, too. So the complement effects and uh, cell-mediated immunity all come from the T-cell-mediated uh, uh, dysregulation. And on top of that, the chemotherapy or the treatments that we use uh, make the immune function worse. So we are already the patient has a poor immune function, and on top of that, we give them chemotherapy, and that makes uh, the infectious risk higher. And then these patients don't respond to vaccination, or don't, they don't have a good response to vaccinations. The other common complications are the autoimmune cytopenias. Uh, again, um, the most common is the autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and then the ITP. Uh, the rarer ones are the pure red cell aplasia and uh, autoimmune agranulocytosis. Uh, there are several mechanisms by which this can present. Uh, the most common is the autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and it's most of the times IgG antibody-driven, uh, which is always uh, uh, produced by the non-malignant clone. 10% uh, of the times it could be IgM uh, antibodies that could be driving uh, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and if it's IgM, it's more, it's predominantly from the, coming from the malignant clone. And then uh, there is uh, autoreactive T helper cell dysregulation that could be causing uh, uh, hemolysis too. The malignant cells uh, produce cytokines, and one of the theories is they might be producing increased interleukins, and they could be driving this hemolysis. And uh, the uh, uh, cell-mediated cytotoxicity could also be playing a role here. Uh, and coming to the incidence, it's all over the place, but uh, I think 2 to 6 percent is the uh, incidence that has been quoted in different studies. Uh, again, some patients might present with uh, hemolysis or autoimmune presentation. Some patients develop autoimmune disease with uh, treatment or could be in a treatment of the disease progression too. Um, ITP is not as common, but it's, uh, again, 2% of these patients can have this. Uh, does autoimmune hemolytic anemia itself uh, indicate worse prognosis? It's, it's debatable. We don't have clear data on that. And then how do we treat it? Uh, depends, and again, it's a clinical judgment most of the times. If it's, the, if it's isolated uh, autoimmune problem, then we try to treat the uh, isolated autoimmune condition. Uh, if it indicates CLL progression, we try to do that. But it's difficult to uh, actually tell what could be the driving factor here. Uh, and most, uh, if it's a warm antibody that's IgG or C3 driven, then we go with steroids and IVIG. And if it's uh, cold antibodies, then it does not respond as well as the warm antibodies. Uh, rituximab can be tried, but we usually try to treat the underlying condition now. Um, again, there are no great trials to help us decide what, would, what can help, but uh, rituximab has been the back, backbone of uh, autoimmune uh, treatments to date. Uh, there are a number of novel agents that are coming through. None have been described or are recommended yet for uh, autoimmune problems, but uh, anecdotal experience-wise, uh, they do help control the hemolysis uh, and the disease quite well. So now coming to the uh, treatment changes that we have seen over the years. So for that, I think we have to get back to the first description of uh, the treatments. Uh, so the first case series that was dis uh, described was way back in 1924, where uh, there was a discussion about on 80 patients who, were, who had advanced <clears throat> disease with CLL who were treated with uh, uh, either uh, radiation or radioactive phosphorus. 
and uh, the discussion was which one should be given to which patient, and the conclusion was neither of them helped. So, and then the, one of the first publications in blood, uh, again, described uh, the CLL, and here they have, a, it's a more elegant discussion where they tell us about the indolent phase of the disease where they describe some patients not having uh, any symptoms, and these patients can be managed just by monitoring, whereas some patients uh, need radiation or radioactive phosphorus. And please note that in those 30 to 40 years, nothing has changed. The radi treatment, we are still talking about radiation and uh, radioactive phosphorus that was deemed to be inactive way back in 1920, but they were still using it in 1950s. So the, uh, the authors concluded that uh, the leukemia may be, may be said to coexist peacefully with its host, uh, this was in patients who had a more indolent disease. And they kind of actually gave recommendations to check these labs every three to six months. And they closed the conclusion saying too much checking might lead to neurosis, which I think is true to date. So how do we manage CL elements? Once we make a diagnosis, do we start to treat them or monitor them? Current recommendations are low-risk disease, again, going back to RISE stage zero or BNA-8. a is more of monitor, and high-risk disease is treat. And uh, the treatment indications, as you can see, are marrow failures, symptomatic disease, or uh, rapidly progressive lymph uh, lymphocytosis. And then the final one is the autoimmune cytopenias that are not responding to steroids. So. You don't need a progressive disease clinically, but uh, cytopenias itself from autoimmune disease can uh, are an indication for treatment. So how did we decide to monitor when someone has a disease, how can we not treat them? Uh, and so we can call them smoldering CLL. Uh, again, no symptoms, lymphocytosis, doubling time more than a year. Again, that's not uh, uh, definitive indication, but a slow doubling time indicates a slow disease or slow pace of disease. And this is based on this randomized um, or a meta-analysis. Again, uh, if you look at the dates, it was from 1970s to 19, all the way until 1990. And uh, there were comparisons with chlorambucil and various combinations. And they found out at that time that early initiation of treatment was probably more harmful, and uh, treating these asymptomatic patients caused harm than benefit. And based on this, the International CLL Trialist Group recommended against initiating treatment in these patients. So again, this is early stage zero to one, so just lymphocytosis or asymptomatic lymphadenopathy. But what about active disease or advanced stage disease, what were we doing or what were they doing at that time? So looking at it right from 1970s to 1990s, what there was nothing else but chlorambucil. Or they, they, were, they tried various combinations, uh, but nothing beat chlorambucil or, or nothing was better than chlorambucil at that time. So, and uh, this was uh, not because of lack of trying, but just because of lack of benefit. Um, and so all these regimens that we're looking at, uh, the CHOP, the COP, uh, and even epirubicin did not, uh, was not better and probably worse from the toxicity point of view. So till 1990s, uh, chlorambucil was the king. And then in 1990s, uh, the nucleoside analogs came along. Fludarabine uh, in phase two trials showed that there was improved response uh, compared to historical chlorambucil treatments. And so in 2000, again, note, uh, please take a note of the date, it's 2000, so not long ago, just 15 years ago, uh, they found that the response rates were better with uh, fludarabine compared to chlorambucil. Uh, but if you look at the overall survival, it wasn't any better. And actually this was a three-arm trial that looked at fludarabine versus uh, chlorambucil, versus fludarabine and chlorambucil. And uh, they had to stop the fludarabine-chlorambucil arm because uh, these patients, uh, because of the toxicities. 
but looking at the response rates, even though the response rates were better, the overall survival wasn't any better. So the authors, uh, in their conclusion, note that it is likely the results of treatment of CLL will be improved through small incremental steps that increase the rates of remission. So it's so the authors, I think, kind of declared victory, saying that we have improved the response rate. So, and this is probably how we should be looking at uh, managing CLL in future. And uh, this was after 40 years of treatment. So then came the fludarabine and cyclophosphamide uh, study, uh, combining uh, FC fludarabine cyclophosphamide with fludarabine. And here they were a little smarter. Instead of enrolling all the patients that came along, uh, they started selecting patients, patients who were younger, who were more fitter. Uh, because if we look at the older study, uh, the, the FC arm, the fludarabine chlorambucil arm, uh, there were a lot of toxicities, and they noticed, noted that this was mostly in older patients who had uh, uh, end organ damage. So here, in this study, they started excluding uh, patients with severe organ dysfunction. They don't describe it. Uh, or at least I could not find the data of how they excluded these patients. Uh, but they also excluded patients with autoimmune hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. So, but again, it's hard to argue that one of the criteria for treating these patients is thrombocytopenia. So it's not clear on what basis were these patients excluded, but uh, that was the exclusion criteria. And there was, uh, as expected, improved uh, progression-free survival and overall response rate, uh, but the toxicities were also more. Uh, so if you see, there were uh, grade three and four toxicities in the FC arm, was nearly 75%. So nearly three quarters of the patients had some degree of severe toxicity. And the survivals, they were not any better. So fludarabine, compared to fludarabine and uh, cyclophosphamide, wasn't uh, any better in the long-term survival. So we're still dealing with uh, uh, studies or uh, disease uh, op treatment options that haven't really shown any improvement, and this is in 2006. So just to recap, uh, what have we seen? So 1970s, we had chlorambucil. We had a response rate of probably around 20%, and then uh, some concoction of combination chemotherapy, which improved it to 30%. <clears throat> Ludarabine improved it to 40 to 50% without any improvement in overall survival. And then we had combination fludarabine with cyclophosphamide that was reaching 75 to 80%. Uh, but uh, none of these trials showed any improvement in overall survival rate. And then the in 2000, rituximab came along, and uh, it, it, it did change the way we treat B-cell malignancies. Uh, so the, this CLL-8 study was, was uh, uh, an important uh, paper because uh, uh, until that time there was evidence that rituximab was improving survival, but there was no phase three data. And here, again, uh, it, was, it was a German study, uh, but they again, wanted to make sure that the patients were healthy enough to get these drugs. So, and they, uh, they came up with a uh, exclusion criteria and uh, the SIR score of less than six. And SIR stands for Cumulative Illness Rating Scale. Uh, and I'll uh, go through how we calculate that. But SIR of less than six means these patients are really healthy. Uh, and uh, they randomized these patients. And the primary endpoint in this trial again, was progression-free survival. And if you look at the median age, it was 61 years. So uh, don't forget the median age of CLL, it's 72 years. So this is, uh, this is a fit population. And uh, for the first time uh, in CLL history, uh, there was improvement in overall survival. Uh, the right graph tells us that the FCR arm was clearly better than the uh, uh, FC arm. Uh, and uh, so were the overall uh, response rates, uh, nearly 90% with rituximab. But it, these were patients who were fit. It, on a retrospective analysis of uh, the high-risk patients, like how did the TP53 mutation patients do uh, with fludarabine? Again, it wasn't uh, 
very convincing. Uh, if you look at it, uh, the progression-free survival was around 19 months for uh, TP53 mutation patients compared to a median of 62 months for uh, the others. And the overall survival was around 30 months compared to 84 months. So still high-risk disease, uh, I think we haven't, uh, at this time, there wasn't much uh, hope apart from FCR, but these patients, uh, again, based on this data, were doing quite poorly. And then bendamustin started coming into uh, more use uh, in uh, late 2000s, uh, early 2010. And then this, based on this phase two trial, uh, which showed uh, pretty good response rates across all risk groups, except the 17P deletion, uh, where the median survival or the progression-free survival was eight months. So because of this, uh, the Germans went on to do the next major study, that was the CLL10 study, which we just got the results, or the final analysis was just uh, reported in ASH in December 2014. Uh, but again, in the inclusion criteria, if you look at it, uh, even the high-risk patients were excluded now. So because, again, it's hard to tell how the high-risk population does with FCR now uh, because one of the exclusion criteria was uh, 17P deletion. Um, and the response rates were, were expectedly quite good. I mean, the overall response rate was 98%. Uh, and for the first time, they were able to demonstrate uh, on flow in the bone marrow that there was no uh, disease on flow, flow cytometry. So these are pretty deep remissions. Uh, uh, and uh, the progression-free survival was, again, uh, better with FCR. The one surprising thing was, looks like the overall survival at three years was worse uh, for uh, FCR <laughs> compared to bendamustin combination, though, not, though it was not statistically significant. And the reason for that, I think, is from the toxicities that we get with uh, FCR. Uh, again, remember, these are really healthy patients or young, fit patients. And in these patients, uh, nearly 50% of uh, patients above 65 years uh, had uh, severe infections. Uh, and uh, they describe severe infections as severe enough to be hospitalized. Um, and uh, the treatment-related mortality was 4% uh, with FCR which I think is uh, probably really high for a disease uh, that uh, is not as aggressive as other cancers are. But still, something to, uh, to discuss with the patients when we are uh, recommending this treatment. What else has been tried for CLL? Uh, so autotransplants uh, were actively pursued until two major clinical trials came into, showed that uh, they do get a better progression-free survival, but uh, in the long term, the overall survival is not better. So they stopped doing autotransplants for uh, CLL at that time. What about allotransplants? So to date, uh, the only treatment that can potentially cure CLL is uh, allotransplant. Uh, but uh, if you look at this uh, recent data, the overall survival at two years is around 65%. And then uh, there's a non-relapse mortality. That means the, treat, the transplant itself killed around 30% of the patients at, by two years. Uh, and then there's this GVHD of ne nearly two-thirds of these patients. So again, high-risk patients, uh, we still recommend allotransplants, but the, it comes with its own costs. But we've been talking about patients who are healthy or fit who don't have many health problems. But as we talked earlier, uh, majority of the patients are older, and uh, their median age is 72 years in this uh, population. So what do we do with those patients uh, who comprise nearly 70% of the total patients? So look at this. Uh, we did a retrospective analysis at uh, Dartmouth uh, for all the patients treated from 2000 to 2013. And uh, we looked at what their health, uh, overall health condition was. Uh, we calculated their uh, cumulative illness rating scale. That's the SIRS stands for cumulative illness rating scale. And uh, we kind of went by the German description of uh, someone having a SIRS score of less than six is fit and healthy, and more than six probably has some comorbidities. Um, and then we also looked at if 
there was a severe organ dysfunction uh, that we classified as SIRS 3 plus. Then we looked at if it affected their overall survival. Uh, just briefly, how did we calculate or how do we calculate SIRS score is uh, each organ is graded on a scale of number of 0 to 4, depending on how severe an organ dysfunction is. 0 is there's no problem, 4 is extremely compromised organ. Uh, example, in end-stage renal disease, patients probably qualify as 4. So what we looked at is that these are the patient characteristics. Uh, we had a slightly younger population compared to the median uh, age of the disease. Um, but looking at it, uh, um, here's the uh, description. The nearly 20% got FR, fludarabine rituximab. 12% got FCR and BR and RCVP. RCVP was used as gentle chemotherapy, or we still use it sometimes, for, uh, but it's, it's not one of the frontline regimens in CLL. <clears throat> And we looked at which patients uh, had uh, had the higher chance of getting a particular chemotherapy. So patients with marginal performance status tend to get bendamustin more often. And uh, older patients, less likely to get fludarabine and uh, more likely to get chlorambucil. Uh, probably from the uh, toxicity data that we have, I think it makes sense that these patients, uh, means at least older patients did not get fludarabine. And uh, what we found was patients with comorbidities uh, uh, for a patient with a population of uh, SIRS more than six, uh, these patients tend to do worse irrespective of what treatment they got. Uh, so for the same disease, uh, some patients who, got, uh, who have uh, more comorbidities tend to do worse uh, compared to healthier patients. And again, even one single organ severe dysfunction, uh, these patients uh, did worse compared to patients without any other problems. Uh, and we looked at the hazard ratios, and uh, the older patients, as expected, did, uh, are at a higher risk for uh, uh, doing poorly. But the fludarabine and cyclophosphamide arms, uh, or patients who received these drugs, also did poorly. And Surprisingly, the patients who got chlorambucil had a better chance or had a better hazard ratio. Uh, same with the organ dysfunction. Anyone having a severe organ dysfunction, uh, these patients uh, tend to do poorly. Again, uh, older patients did worse, and fludarabine and cyclophosphamide patients did worse. So again, this, is, this was a recurrent theme that we saw. And with every, organ, every increase in organ dysfunction for every point, we found that older patients uh, tend to do worse, and uh, again, fludarabine and cyclophosphamide did worse. And uh, chlorambucil patients at least tend to do better. So we concluded that uh, a prop SIRS is a, probably a reasonable uh, prognostic indicator in CLL patients. Uh, this is a retrospective analysis, so there are many uh, limitations to this study, but at least uh, patients above 70 years with severe organ dysfunction or have, who have comorbidities probably should not be getting cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. And uh, probably they might do better with gentler treatment regimens. So that brings us to like, how do we treat these patients, uh, given that these patients uh, are still uh, the silent majority out there? So how, how about the novel agents that have been uh, uh, coming around in the last few years? Uh, the first one was the obinutuzumab, uh, which is a CD20 antibody, which binds to this uh, CD20 in, a, in a, a different mechanism compared to rituximab and has a better antibody-dependent uh, cellular toxicity. And uh, this was the first trial uh, that actually uh, enrolled patients uh, who had uh, health issues. So these were patients who had health problems and had poor renal function. So, and uh, this was a three-arm study. And uh, again, looking at it, the median age was close to what we actually see in the clinic, 73 years. And uh, I would like you to look at the right graph on the top, where these patients, uh, nearly 20% of, or 30% of them had uh, minimal residual disease negativity. So this is quite a deep response. Uh, looking back over all the treatment regimens that we have uh, seen till now, I think uh, uh, for this 
group of population, this is a pretty deep response. And again, looking at the survivals, the obentrizumab arm did uh, reasonably well. Uh, their median uh, overall survival was nearly 27 months compared to 15 months. That brings us to the topic of uh, how about uh, the B-cell receptor targets. Uh, as I'd shown or uh, talked before, the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor and uh, the PI3K delta inhibitors uh, have come into the uh, mainline, frontline treatment regimens. I like to keep it simple. So ibrutinib uh, blocks the BTK and uh, that helps with uh, the survival or in impairs cell survival and so does idlalisib. So just two years ago, this was a big paper that uh, was published in NEGM by uh, the Ohio State group. Um, and the selection criteria for this study was uh, refractory patients uh, they had see, who had seen all lines of treatment regimens and who had high-risk disease, uh, 17p deletion and uh, unmutated uh, immunoglobulin um, variable regions. And everyone was uh, really presently surprised looking at the survival curves. Uh, for the first time, uh, the 17p deletion patients had a 60, nearly 58% uh, survival at 26 months. This is slightly higher compared to the transplant group too. Again, we're looking at uh, different trials, uh, which is always dangerous, but uh, this is a gentle regimen that really changed the way we're looking at uh, CLL now. And that was uh, what about treatment-naive patients? Looks like uh, even with 17p deletion, patients who are treatment-naive uh, do better than patients who have received chemotherapy. Uh, the thinking is uh, probably the chemotherapy induces a lot of cell-cell damage, uh, uh, cell damage, and that can cause uh, more uh, genomic complications and uh, uh, that might be affecting the treatment outcomes. Uh, again, compared to first line and relapse, there's a 84% uh, uh, survival at two years uh, for treatment naive patients. And the response with ibrutinib, uh, as we have all seen in the clinics, uh, there is a steep lymphocytosis once we start the drug, and then the lymphocytosis gradually improves over the four to six months. Uh, what's important is we don't see a lot of complete responses uh, in this, uh, with this drug, but what we do see is uh, ongoing uh, response uh, and ongoing uh, deep response uh, looking at it. Uh, this, the first one was at 24 months, and then the same group uh, uh, just uh, came up with an update of the same data last month. And looking at it, uh, at 42 months, the response is still ongoing in these patients. So again, a, a pill that's controlling the disease for nearly five years, this is quite remarkable looking at the history of CLL itself. Um, uh, looking at the r response uh, for treatment naive versus uh, relapsed disease, uh, again, this is high-risk group. The, uh, the 17p deletion patients tend to do worse but, it, but the response is better than the historical controls. Uh, the NIH group actually came up with a pretty neat description of how the ibrutinib uh, works and, uh, or how do we expect the disease to change over time. And if you look at the, uh, the PET scan images on the left one, is, uh, that's this massive splenomegaly and lymphadenopathy. And, over six months, there is a pretty drastic or dramatic improvement in the disease tumor burden. And, uh, and what we see, the initial lymphocytosis is uh, just more of the uh, cancer cells coming out of the lymph nodes and spleen. And the other thing, the beauty of this drug is the complications or the side effects decrease over time. Um, there, there are, there's less neutropenia and there's less thrombocytopenia. Uh, so probably as the malignant clone is driven down, the healthy cells take over, and uh, we actually see less of the, these complications. Um, and uh, there are also reports that the humoral immunity, the immunoglobulin levels also start improving with time. So the 
the study that got this drug approval was uh, the uh, comparison with uh, ibrutinib and ofatumumab. And again, the, the survival curves and the progression-free survival curves are quite uh, dramatic here. And uh, again, these, this study was run, done in older patients with comorbidities. So that's where most of our patients fall into. So some, uh, there's always this question of how safe is this and what is the tolerability. Uh, there are grade three cytopenias early on which resolve with time and uh, that does not seem to be an issue. Bleeding has been of concern, uh, especially when there were two deaths in uh, the phase one study uh, from subdural hematomas. Uh, but majority of these bleedings are uh, petechia and ecchymosis. And 5% uh, of these patients can have atrial fibrillation. Uh, the thinking is the SA node has uh, BTK uh, uh, cells and uh, the blocking the uh, BTK uh, uh, can increase the risk of AFib. Again, it's, we don't have, this was a preclinical test data, we don't have proof of this yet. Uh, this is, uh, again, uh, the improving uh, cell counts, the hemoglobin and the platelets over with treatment. So this, unlike the other treatments, uh, the chemoimmunotherapies that we're used to, the cell counts here continue to improve over, over a period of time. Uh, one thing that uh, my patients always talk about is how expensive is this drug. And uh, it is quite expensive, uh, especially now that uh, the pharmacyclics which makes this drug was acquired or, or sold a 50% stake of this drug to AbbVie for $21 billion. So I'm sure this is going to be passed on to the patients as at, over the next few years. So. What's the cause of uh, bleeding in these patients? And again, uh, uh, there, there was an Australian paper that showed that uh, they looked at the platelet agrigometry studies uh, and uh, looks like uh, the ibrutinib affects the collagen-mediated platelet aggregation. Um, so the first one on the left is when the platelet agrigometry on ibrutinib, uh, as you can see, the green line is much uh, below the normal self, and after holding the drug, uh, it it recovers, and then once we start it, it comes down again. So, it's it's more of a uh, confirms that uh, the platelet function is affected. So that means when we add antiplatelet agents or anticoagulations, there's a higher higher risk of uh, bleeding complications for these patients. So something to keep or uh, discuss with the patients. So before I start uh, looking like an ibrutinib salesman, I would like to move on to adlalisib. So again, uh, adlalisib was some started, uh, uh, the, the drug development started sometime in 2007, and now it is uh, also approved for CLL. Um, again, uh, um, another sp uh, clinical study that looked at all the patients who had uh, pretty significant uh, health problems uh, who were quite sick to begin with. And uh, they accrued patients who had who were quite chemorefractory. Again, the same theme repeats, and uh, the response rates are quite remarkable here. Uh, the overall survival at, for these patients was 92 percent at 92 percent at one year. What's more interesting is the depth of response. Uh, so these are the lymph node analysis that they did, and if you look at it, uh, near more than 70% of these patients had more than 50% improvement in uh, the uh, lymph node resolution. Uh, again, these are patients who have seen all kinds of chemotherapies, so pretty impressive. And again, of all uh, subsets of, of patients did well. And uh, that's the high-risk group, again, 17P and the unmutated IgH. Uh, there are certain unique toxicities for with idilalisib. Uh, the one is uh, the uh, autoimmune transaminitis, these improve when we hold the drug, uh, but these respond to steroids. The other one is pneumonitis uh, that responds to inhaled steroids. And then colitis, uh, which can be uh, nearly grade three to four uh, in a quarter of these patients. Uh, again, respond to uh, systemic steroids or butacinide. It's not clear what could be causing this, uh, uh, some kind of uh, autoimmune T-cell mediated uh, uh, complication is what the theory is. We don't have, uh, we don't know what, 
what the exact etiology is at this time. One drug that isn't approved for CLL, but uh, we expect it to be approved sometime in the next one to two years is ABT199, which is a vanitoclax. Uh, again, uh, pretty deep response uh, in treatment uh, refractory patients. Uh, this is a phase one, two data that was presented at uh, in European Hematology Association meeting last year. Uh, and uh, actually this drug was uh, was being developed concurrently to ibrutinib, but the development got delayed because two patients died from tumor lysis. Uh, so even the, the manufacturers were not aware of the efficacy of this drug. Uh, so, so it kind of delayed the drug development by a couple of years. So how does the future look? Uh, I think we'll be hearing more and more about the mutation, mutational analysis of these uh, uh, of this disease to help us with treatment plans. Uh, the question is, would early intervention when the tumor burden is low uh, help? Because what we are looking at is patients, uh, uh, the current recommendations are based on chlorambucil era recommendations. Um, ABT199, I think, is getting closer. Uh, we're already looking at the next generation uh, novel agents. And one challenge that might be uh, a good problem to have is how do we sequence these uh, patients? How do we sequence the treatments? Um, and then the role of allotransplant. Uh, I think it still has a role. Uh, we don't know how to, where to put it, especially now that the 17 PD lesion patients are doing so well. And then uh, I didn't touch on this, but uh, the chimeric antigen receptor therapy is also kind of evolving. So I don't know where I saw this, but it kind of stuck to me. Uh, like cure may be a high bar for many diseases and a necessity only when peaceful coexistence is not an option. Uh, all right, so for now, uh, we still use fish analysis to stratify patients, uh, but uh, molecular analysis will come over. Uh, uh, for deletion 17P patients, uh, we are already putting these patients on ibrutinib or clinical trials. Uh, um, all others, FCR is still frontline. Uh, Allotransplant in high-risk young patients and uh, older patients, we are going ahead with the novel agents. And thank you. I would like to thank uh, all my faculty who have helped me here, uh, Dr. Pipus and Dr. Davis, uh, who are the back, uh, backbones of our fellowship program, uh, Dr. Gautier and uh, Dr. Lowry, uh, who have helped me with my or nurtured me in the continuity clinics and uh, the CLL research team uh, and uh, everyone else. Thank you. Quick one for you, Sadir. Sure. Um, with a brute name, have you seen any data of its usefulness in uh, the autoimmune thrombocytopenia pneumonia? Uh, the Ohio State group presented a pay of an abstract at ASH last year where they did they showed benefit with autoimmune uh, hemolysis uh, when used over a period of time. Uh, so it does control the autoimmune problem, but it doesn't resolve completely. Uh, but I think as the uh, tumor clone goes down, the, that problem tends to resolve. So again, we see it over a period of time. So. Along those lines, did they see a flare then with when they used ibrutinib in the like when you get the flare from ibrutinib, so, counts go up before they go down again. They, did those problems get worse before they got better? I, I don't remember them describing that. Uh, uh, so because most of, I guess probably because the autoimmune problem is more from non-malignant clone, and the flare we are seeing is the malignant cells egressing out of the lymph nodes and spleen. So, but again, um, there's no data showing that there is a flare there, so. Right. Question, so, do you have more than that, the idea of the autoimmune problems being more non-malignant clones, especially the IgG, mm -hmm. um, and how that changes the way you, you treat? So I'd say that the disease looks fairly stable, but yet they're having an autoimmune problem. Um, would you use, like, like you're saying here, more of an ibrutinib to treat the disease, or use something more just like you would for the autoimmune problem, correct? 
I think we'll need more data on uh, the novel agents. Whether We don't know whether they'll control the autoimmune problem uh, as of now. But uh, for now, if it's the autoimmune problem is the driving factor or the driving problem, then uh, we probably treat the autoimmune problem with steroids or IVIG. So, but I think that's going to change too. Yeah, I know there was a publication that looked at people who progress on ibrutinib have a kind of a pretty poor prognosis. Yeah. Um, it may be just who's been on it to start with, and they've been through a lot of things. But do you, do, is there a mechanism of resistance that's emerging? Yeah, so there are some. Uh, there's some data looking at the bruton tyrosine kinase mutations itself uh, that uh, decrease the affinity. So again, the ibrutinib is a covalent, uh, binds covalently. But if there's a mutation to the binding site, uh, the ibrutinib is not as effective. And then there are also mutations downstream uh, that could be activating the B-cell receptor. So those are the two mechanisms that have been proposed uh, and that seem to be valid. All right.